We did it. I still can't believe we got this project done so fast and so well. When I'm in New York. I'm in Chicago. And I'm in L.A. But we're making it happen in Miro. Together. Our best work just happens faster on Miro's collaborative online whiteboard. No more scheduling meeting after meeting for work that could happen from anywhere. Whether it's getting design feedback here, mapping timelines here, or brainstorming next steps here. It all just happens on the Miro board. Exactly. And it's nice not having to wait an entire day to get sign off from this guy. Hey! Well, it is true. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com. The first three boards are free forever. That's M-I-R-O.com. Hello and welcome to the Boys in the Band podcast. I'm Richard Gallagher. And I'm Peter Smith. And on this week's podcast, we speak to James Walsh, singer from Star Sailor. Back-to-back albums at number two in the charts. Singles like Alcoholic, Silence is Easy, Good Souls, Four to the Floor. Um, Rich, I can really remember getting bought Love is Here one Christmas. And um, well, I've just realised that was pretty much exactly 20 years ago now. Yeah, almost exactly 20 years ago now. They're heading off on a 20th anniversary tour of that debut album this December. And we chat to James all about that. Uh, and we also asked about uh, Star Sailor shows from back in the day. James talked about this incorrect assumption that their gigs might just be people stood around stroking their beards. Uh, but far from it, as he tells us here. I, I remember some really, like, I don't want to... Obviously, what's going on on stage, we weren't sort of shredding and <laughs> ripping it up. But the people in the crowd were going mad for it. They'd found their, they'd found their sound, they'd found something to identify with and I think that's always something to be celebrated and and to be proud of. Yeah, there's some big gigs back in the 2000s for them as well. They did some huge shows supporting the Rolling Stones and the Killers in South America. Uh, James tells us about those and uh, I particularly enjoyed hearing how Four to the Floor had a second life as what James called as a house banger. Uh, yeah, remixed by Thin White Duke and number one in France. Yeah, yeah, I remember that that remix very well, and uh, yeah, it certainly did very well across Europe, didn't it? And um, although they decided not not to continue down that dance route for their next album, despite that success, uh, James tells us about the recording of those albums uh, from what, briefly working with Phil Spector uh, to perhaps chasing a different sound on their third album. So absolutely loads in this one. Yep, there is. So here it is, James Walsh from Star Sailor on the Boys in the Band podcast. This week on the Boys in the Band podcast, we're delighted to be joined by James Walsh, lead singer of Star Sailor. How are you doing, James? I'm very good, thanks. Good, good. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Looking forward to chatting. Um, James, no we always start with the sound check. Three quick questions to get us warmed up. And the first one is, where are you? Uh, I'm in London, in southwest London, uh, at home. Um, yeah, we've just... Uh, my girlfriend's putting the baby to bed, so uh, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to uh, make sure I don't. It does this uh, interview doesn't get too raucous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, can't, can't promise, James. Can't promise. But, uh, we'll, we'll try not to get too rowdy. 
Um, <laughs> next up in the sound check, James, um, what are you listening to right now? Any particular artists you're into? Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, Laura Veers. Uh-huh. We've been we've been listening to kind of she's actually got a really good kind of kids record called uh, Tumblebee, right. which is which is a great find because so many kids records are unlistenable, sort of <laughs> <laughs> badly produced nonsense, and this is like actually bearable. So that's um, in fact better than bearable. It's a nice little record. Oh. Um, but then her non-kid stuff is really good as well. Um, the uh, July Flame album. Um, uh, Phoebe Bridges is a someone who I always return to. is a great artist to listen to. Uh, Sam Fender's new album is really good as yeah, well. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, loads of loads of great music out there. Yeah, yeah good yeah. tip there. I'm. Uh... But I think if I hear one more version of Wheels on the Bus, I might actually go mad. <laughs> My two-year-old insists on it constantly. Um, third question is actually how are rehearsals going for Love Is Here 20th anniversary tour in December? Can you believe it? 20 years. Um, we actually haven't rehearsed um, what? Since, <laughs> since, since the week. So we had this Warrington gig on the actual mm. night of the anniversary. So we did a week of rehearsals leading up to that. Right. And because, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> it's going to be a pretty similar set for the tour. <laughs> um, and we've all got uh, our own families and other commitments as well. We thought we'd get away with just like a quick um, refresher. Yeah. Uh, like the day before we get on, or even the, I think we're doing it the day that we, get on the bus to start the tour so uh yeah rehearsals went well though when when we were doing them um a little while ago great stuff i i I imagine those songs are pretty well ingrained Mm. uh in in you all anyway so um yeah yeah, well let's let's talk about that debut album a bit then james you know all, all these years on um 20 years as we mentioned how do you reflect on that album now um with a lot of pride and sentimentality as well it's like very much kind of looking back on a, a huge moment in our youth. And I think that the longer time goes on and the the more people connect with it, obviously the more sort of proud of it you become. And so I think there's there's always a, a period in the immediate aftermath of releasing an album where you almost want to escape that the hype and the the praise and everything that comes with it because you want to prove that you can you can do something else. You, the difficult second album syndrome. Um, so yeah, it's, it's taken a while to to come to terms with the fact that that Love Is Here was such a big album, and um, it's something to be to be celebrated and and not kind of hidden away because we're too eager to prove what what else we've done and what what else we could do. Yeah, sure. You go back to when you were writing songs for that album and. Um... You know, early days of Star Sailor. What were the influences that that drove that sound? See, quite a lot of acoustic guitar on there. Was, is that is that how the songs were written? Is she sitting down with a guitar like that? Yeah, yeah. I think that for the most part, I guess the electric came more into play on subsequent albums. I think, mm. yeah, the the acoustic and the piano are big parts of of Love Is Here. 
Jeff Buckley was a big influence because oh. of his voice and his um his sort of quiet rock star mannerisms. Like he's very charismatic, but in a mm. a much more subtle and understated way than obviously the likes of Ian Brown and Liam Gallagher, who were who were a bit more flamboyant and maybe flamboyant's the wrong word for them, but <laughs> a bit more sort of out there and, and giving it the big one. Um, so he was the big influence. Free, the band Free. Yeah, yeah. Particularly the, the rhythm section. Big fans of Simon Kirk and Andy Fraser. So that definitely influenced our sound. Neil Young and Van Morrison. Just classic sort of singer-songwriters and mm. bands, West Coast bands and the, obviously British groups like Free as well. Signed with EMI pretty early, so it would have been... You know, great to have that sort of a major record company back in and you had the the lead singles off the album were like Fever, then Good Souls and Alcoholic, but just before the debut album was released in October 2001. And I do remember those those songs coming around and they're really be feeling like that momentum was growing behind the band. So what are your memories of sort of the recording sessions down at Rockfield Studios and, and that momentum that built as the singles were coming? Um, it was really exciting. I think it's the only time we've made a record because we were so young and inexperienced. It's the only time we've made a record where we've really handed over the reins to the producer, Steve Osborne, because um, we didn't know what we were talking about. <laughs> we just had these songs we were really proud of and, and we were happy to have someone sort of steering the ship and, and keeping us on track. It was a really exciting time. And it, it was beneficial as well that we were in Rockfield rather than Abbey Road or somewhere in London because it was hard enough to sort of keep the record label at bay with us doing it in, in rural Wales. So it would have been even worse in London with all that sort of pressure. And I think it's when you do an album and you kind of go home at the end of the day or you, uh, or you sort of do it sporadically you had it definitely takes some time to get your head back into it so to do it in a in in a six week stint without a, a proper break was a good thing as well you mentioned the pressure there did you feel pressure from the record label what was the sort of pressure was it to deliver it in a certain way or um, presumably the sound was pretty nailed down by that point um yeah i think the pressure was to capture the sound because we'd We'd had some great reviews as a as a live band, so I think the the pressure was to to recreate that and and to add something extra, something um, yeah, to to capture the sound and the spirit of the band. Mm. There's a bit of press and media pressure as well because the the enemy had sort of hailed us as this great new band. Mm. I think the best the best new band in Britain. Monica, which a lot of bands have been tagged with, <laughs> came a little bit later, but there was already by that point there was still a lot of um, a lot of hype around us that we we could definitely feel. It's one. It's it's probably beneficial that we were so young at the time as well, because I think there's a sort of youthful bravado that kicks into gear then. Whereas I think if I had to make a record now with, with that kind of pressure, I'd be probably shitting it a little a little bit more <laughs> yeah i can imagine um well we obviously delivered on that because it went into number two in the charts and just behind kylie minogue 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mixing it with Kylie Minogue at the top of the charts. With her album Fever, uh, ironically, given the one of your tracks. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was the buzz like at that time? Because obviously 2001, you know, times when you know the charts were really important, weren't they? And, and obviously clearly yeah. guitar bands could have an impact in charts. Do you remember that that week, that, that uh, you know, the race for, for Top Spot? Yeah, I think it, it's amazing how quickly you become almost desensitized or or comfortable in 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 that sort of world and because mm. everyone around you is, is telling you how how good you are and <laughs> how this is only the start so you do rather than being like properly being proud of of what we achieved in getting to number two in the charts with this record which is just ridiculous when Previously, my ambition was to get a demo reviewed in the demo section of Melody Maker. And the next thing you know, you're thinking, ah, sort of disappointed that it didn't hit number one. And the label's a bit disappointed. And like I say, you don't quite grasp how big an achievement it is even to have a top five record or even a top 40 record is something that so many bands sort of dream of and yet you kind of sat there like I say just I guess it's like anything this when you get so close to the to the the prize or whatever then you're kind of disappointed that you couldn't quite do it even though like I say it's it's a ridiculous achievement to to get that far I suppose yeah. it's like a like a championship team or a league one team getting to the FA Cup final there's still going to be that slight feeling of disappointment that you didn't quite get the get your hands on the on the big price when prize when getting so close to it yeah i can remember my team Mill getting to the fa cup final in 2004 <laughs> and uh, uh 30 minutes yeah. in despite cristiano ronaldo running rings around us it was still nil nil and i did think <laughs> we could get to half time <laughs> you never know <laughs> You never know, but uh, mm-hmm. didn't quite work I suppose, out. Like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I suppose Kylie sort of takes the Man United Liverpool sort of role in this, do they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, of all the people that we could have lost out to, I think Kylie's a pretty good one. She's a, yeah. a bit of an icon, so uh, I'll I'll give her that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll let her off. <laughs> um, yeah, Pete mentioned how um, guitar bands were really having an impact on that time, and there was this. Uh, this little cluster of, of, of bands around that time that uh, that, that coined a, a phrase that they were referenced uh, the, the new acoustic movement. And I think Star Sailor and bands a bit like Travis and Badly Drawn Boy, David Gray, Shereen Breaks, those sorts of uh, acts were having sort of similar success around that time. Um, how did you feel about that kind of label and being linked with with those acts? Uh, did it did it have any impact on you? It was quite exciting, to be honest. It was yeah. quite a it felt good to be part of a scene. And I remember the gigs were really exciting and the, the crowds were, were quite were young and, and passionate. And I think that's sometimes misremembered, like people assume that everyone listening to those sorts of bands and those sorts of songs were stood just like old older men kind of stroking their beards or whatever. <laughs> And then bands like the Strokes and the Libertines came along and, and that's when the more fanatical fan or the more passionate 
crowds kind of came in, but I I remember some really like I don't want to obviously what's going on on stage we weren't sort of shredding and <laughs> ripping it up, but the people in the crowd were going mad for it. They'd found their they'd found their sound. They'd found something to identify with, and I think that's always something to be celebrated and and to be proud of. And and a lot of those people stuck with us as well. I think it's great when bands like the Strokes, the Libertines, um, I'm trying to think, the White Stripes, obviously. Obviously, there were people out there who were looking for something like that, and they found their sound, and their fans have stayed with them as well. I think uh, basically there's room there's room for all of us. It doesn't need to be it doesn't need to be a sort of hyperbole of um, everyone against each other and movement needed to happen to get rid of this one yeah i think musics and music scenes are constantly evolving um but everyone remembers and has affection for the first bands they got into and luckily a load of people got into us at the time yeah definitely do you um yeah, the bands that Rich mentioned, were they the sort of bands that you were into at that time as well? Or were there particular bands that you toured with that you particularly liked? You're just sort of thinking about, you know, that era, that moment when you were going up and down the country or wherever um, you were playing, who you were into at that point? I remember uh, um, Elliot Smith was a mm. big influence. He's kind of come under a bit of a cloud recently. Uh, but Ryan Adams was uh, yeah. an artist who was sort of hotly tipped at the time and made some great records um, obviously is is in seen in a, a different light now we've toured with doves a lot yeah um, we did our first tour outside the UK with doves which was an amazing experience playing in Ireland in Dublin Belfast just being being out on the road for the first time was a with a band like them as well we kind of it felt like it wasn't five minutes ago we were around each other's houses listening to cedar room and mm, yeah, um, yeah yeah here it comes and songs like this and next next thing we know we're watching them from the side of the stage waiting to go well not waiting to go on because <laughs> yeah because after after we played <laughs> peter k even came on stage with you in uh, a christmas show in 2002 we were reading what was this about um yeah we, we're massive fans of phoenix nights and yeah. i think my brother knew his agent phil mcintyre who does loads of comedy gigs and come and looks after loads of comedians and we just managed to make it happen we, he was um enjoying a he's obviously still really famous but he was enjoying a particular wave at that time like live at the top of the tower and that peter k thing phoenix nights all those things were on everyone's lips and we found him really hilarious and we just thought it'd be a great idea to to get him up to do a few gags and yeah it went it went down really well he was doing jokes was he wasn't singing he was he didn't take over the mic from me no he did his route he did his routine with the boom box about misheard lyrics yeah. <laughs> yeah i think the the original plan was for him to introduce us um, but he was running late from a gig or something. So he ended up uh, sort of reintroducing us when we came back on for the encore. 
Fantastic. Love it. Yeah. yeah. So what, what about those live experiences then, James? You talk about, you know, people finding their, their space and, and, and enjoying Star Sailor and that passionate, uh, that mm-hmm. passion in the cry, crowd. And, uh, you know, songs, you know, songs that Star Sailor uh, have, have got in their back castle. They have that kind of euphoria to them, don't they? They sort of build and crescendo. And you can see that those, uh, the fans really giving it that passion in the audience. What's that like for you up on stage to sort of... Uh, receive all that kind of uh, adulation it can be quite moving at times like to and uh, possibly more so now as well because it's um you so the older you get the more kind of appreciative of of how ridiculous or not ridiculous that's the wrong word or how just how lucky we are to to get to do this and and how amazing it is that these songs connected with all these people like I say, I think there's a there's a part of you when you're younger that you almost feel like you deserve it in some way. You, you're kind of just cockier and a bit more egotistical and you think, well, yeah, obviously these people love this <laughs> music because I'm fucking brilliant. <laughs> um, but then you you get older and become more, well, hopefully, you <laughs> you become more modest and thoughtful and appreciative um and you look at people singing the songs back to you and think this is amazing this is more than anyone deserves really well james we'll follow up um the debut or talk about how you followed up the debut after this quick break and uh, talk more about the star sailor story in part two i'm james walsh from star sailor and you're listening to the boys in the band podcast We did it. I still can't believe we got this project done so fast and so well. When I'm in New York. I'm in Chicago. And I'm in L.A. But we're making it happen in Miro. Together. Our best work just happens faster on Miro's collaborative online whiteboard. No more scheduling meeting after meeting for work that could happen from anywhere. Whether it's getting design feedback here. Mapping timelines here or brainstorming next steps here. It all just happens on the Miro board. Exactly. And it's nice not having to wait an entire day to get sign-off from this guy. Hey! Well, it is true. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com. The first three boards are free forever. That's M-I-R-O.com. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages, and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast, where we're joined by James Walsh from Star Sailor. So we're talking about uh, album number one, debut album, uh, Love Is Here, in the first part, James. And you talked about that difficult second album. So uh, it's, it's, often, it's often never easy. Um, but Silence Is Easy was the follow-up. It hit number two in the charts as well. So, uh, so you know, it me- measured up in, in that regard. But how was that uh, process of uh, approaching that difficult second record, if you like? And I uh, heard it wasn't entirely straightforward. There's a, a brief brief involvement of Phil Spector in it as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that's that's true. Um, yeah, it, was, it was certainly quite a difficult 
quite a difficult undertaking after the, the success of the debut. It came around like we ended up in the studio for quite a, lo- a long time, sort of longer than the first album, but there wasn't anywhere near as much time to write the songs for the second album. It's like you've got a lifetime to write your songs for your debut album and two weeks to write, <laughs> write two weeks between tours to write the songs for the second. Um, but I think that it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, like that pressure and that momentum kind of drove us to write um, quite a lot of songs on that record that were still, that are still sort of big crowd pleasers, like Four to the Floor and Silence is Easy. And yeah, like like you say, when as soon as Phil Spector came onto the scene and and declared himself kind of interested in making the record, then that was initially the road we were going down. And the label and the PR were really excited about the prospect, and we were as well because of what obviously what he'd done with Dion and um, John Lennon, the Ramones, so many classic bands. Um, but then the the sort of other side of not the other side of the Spectre story because that's obviously <laughs> extremely dark and tragic. Um, but the other side of the story of Silence is Easy is kind of when we picked up the pieces after uh, after the situation with with Spectre deteriorated. The sort of work that we did with Danton Supple to finish the album is maybe because of Spectre's name and his notoriety now, it's kind of underplayed and not really mentioned. And I think he, Danton did an amazing job of, uh, yeah, like I say, helping us to pick up the pieces and put together a really great record. And Floor to the Floor is kind of his his production. Um, Basically everything except Silence is Easy and, and White Dove. Um, and I think he did a, a brilliant job. Um, obviously, for a long time, we were proud of um, what we, the work we did with Phil Spector as well. But I think that's gonna, always going to have a sort of cloud over it now because when something's so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult subject, but when someone goes to someone's house and, and doesn't return, um, it's just, yeah, like I say, it overshadows everything else. And it's, it's difficult to talk about someone in any kind of positive light who's uh, responsible for that. In, in, yeah, it's a tricky subject because there are still people out there who um, have different theories on what happened and that's... Like I say, the, the one undisputed fact is that that woman went there and died and mm. is sad, is no longer with us. And um, yeah, it's just a, an awful tragedy, really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about Four to the Floor and on a lighter note, because obviously, as you, you mentioned that a couple of times, and it's one of my favourite <laughs> songs off that album is a song that also sort of had two lives really didn't it uh when thin white duke got involved with the remix so tell us a little bit about well both versions really and uh yeah also that one which sort of took off on the club scene 
Um, yeah, I remember it was a real buzz when we got this the orchestra in to record mm. um, Four to the Floor. The arrangement's by an amazing arranger and producer called Leo Abrahams, <clears throat> who was uh, playing with Ed Harcourt at the time and just started doing different string arrangements and things. I think he'd done some arrangements for Ed. Um, and his sort of... Uh, brief was to make it a kind of Motown disco sort of uh, feel, Northern Soul. Mm. And like you say, we that song was um, getting traction and doing well. Uh, there's a, there was a strange decision by the label to release Born Again before the UK label released Born Again before Four to the Floor, which we found slightly odd, but that's what they wanted to do. <laughs> and Four to the Floor became a massive hit in Europe. And I think be because it was the third, second or third single in the UK, it kind of struggled a bit over here. And then we, I think we were in the studio recording B-sides and we got this uh, CDR which was how people shared music at the time. And my brother was like, uh, Stuart Price has done a remix of Falls to the Floor. We, we were surprised when we heard it. We were like, how's he, how's he done this? Like, what's he? <laughs> but we all, we all loved what he'd done with the track. We were just a bit taken aback that um, he'd managed to, to make this sort of house banger from <laughs> this kind of slightly northern soul track that we'd recorded um so to be honest with you I, like i have no idea about the world of of dance music we were just like yeah let's we had no expectations that it would become this huge the remix would become this huge hit that it did we were just like well this is cool he's he's done a great job um maybe it'll become a sort of niche kind of club track go ahead and put it out and then it just france kind of it really took off in france then and we'd go and tour in france and i think people were a bit perplexed that we weren't djs <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it got to number one in france didn't it yeah 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 fantastic um, so you weren't tempted to then, you know, go down the DJ route or go down the dance route for album number three? Um, no, we, we went, I can't remember why, but we went quite rocky for album number three. We went, um, I, think our, I think our third album's, along with the first one, the third album's probably the best produced record. I think it's got a really good sound to it. Um the songs maybe aren't the strongest. Um, there's still some highlights on it, but I think the the sound of the album is really is really good. It's really strong and solid. That was recorded out in LA, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that was quite quite influenced by. I guess the love is here and uh, silence is easy. We were riding a kind of wave of momentum. And we had 
this sort of space to be ourselves and people reacted to the the songs that we naturally wrote basically um whereas i think on the outside we we'd see bands at festivals and stuff getting amazing reactions with i guess bands like muse and maybe biffy clyro were kept starting to come through and we just thought kind of rightly or wrongly we needed to add a bit more aggression and a bit more edge to what we were doing we've maybe felt like we were sort of fighting a bit more um to be heard and to be to stay on the map than previous records which felt a bit more i guess that that's where the title on the outside comes from whereas the previous records we very much felt a part of of every a big part of everything and and apart from the the pressure of following up love is here it was a bit more relaxed and we we knew that there'd be a, an audience for it mm. um so sorry i'm probably rambling a bit now yeah, <laughs> we knew <laughs> we knew that there'd be an audience for those albums regardless of the pressure whereas the third record i think we were a bit more worried basically that uh, like so many bands the first album's big second album if they're lucky and there's very few bands where the third album has any impact and we definitely felt that pressure that fed into the record and, and made it a bit more of a a bit self a bit more of a self-conscious hmm. affair yeah. in hindsight is, is it what would you have done at that time now if you if you had that time again would you sort of keep trying to chase that to try and find an impact or do you think you would have sort of uh, you know, doubled down on the sound of the first couple of albums um it's a good question i think yeah maybe just put a little bit less pressure on ourselves and Mm. yeah tried to make a record in isolation and instead of listening to everything else that's going on and and trying to compete almost i think there's definitely an element of that but like i say there's still elements of that album that like the production's really good and songs like this time and in the crossfire um, yeah. i don't know still stand up yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at that time, you're still playing huge shows as well, playing the big festivals, touring North America. Mm. Um, ended up with a support slot with the Rolling Stones a few times. Is that right? Around this sort of time? How did that come about? Um, our agent was looking after the Stones at the time, so he he organised it. Um, I think, to be honest with you, the Stones are one of those bands where they don't kind of personally call you up and say, Could you? <laughs> hi, it's Mick here. Do you want to do it? Um, but there's still an element of, of honor and, and uh, flattery attached because they're obviously going to, they get offered bands to support them and they're obviously going to turn them down if they're, <laughs> if they're not to their liking. So yeah. We were we were most pleased that they were they were happy that we were put forward and yeah we've we've got a a little picture an official picture that we got with the band and yeah it's so nice. something I think the thing with those gigs is the occasion is amazing and to be able to say that we've supported the Stones is obviously a huge honor because they're a a legendary band um. But they're not 
as a support band, they're not great gigs because, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, people, it's a diehard Rolling Stones audience and people are kind of settling in and, and because they're such huge gigs as well, lots of people are at the merch kiosk or <laughs> getting their beers in for the, for the main event. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fighting to grab so, their attention. Yeah, and also the the sound as well is is weird because you're sort of rattling around a kind of half empty arena or stadium. Yeah. So, but I I don't I mean that in the most appreciative way as well. It's mm. like like I say, it's still a huge um a huge honor and a, a great thing to be able to say that we've done. Um. But yeah, you you're essentially playing to a lot of people walking into somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a, f- a few other sort of uh, big shows you played, like High Park as well with the, the, the police, Roger Waters, and those that sort of did some support shows for the Killers out down in South America as well. So you know, massive shows. And you know, the Killers, especially, we're talking about sort of 2006, 2007 now, aren't we? And um, a lot of these sort of uh, Naughty's indie bands that we've had on on our podcast before, you know, were you know in in the sort of boom at that time. Were there any? We talked earlier about the sort of the differences between you know the likes of yourselves and then you know, the Strokes and Libertines coming out. Were there any bands around around that Naughty's indie scene that you were you were particularly keen on or or loathed some of? Yeah, I think the Killers were amazing band especially the second album sam's town i think mm. with the when we were young and um read my mind i think they're obviously mr brightside's an amazing song and all these things that i've done i think the those songs from the second album have a bit more depth to them and and they they're my that they're my favorite killer songs but yes block party another amazing band brilliant live yeah we maybe kind of didn't like more recently i've appreciated elbows music and sort of return to that because i think you maybe don't appreciate it as much because they're almost not competitors is the wrong word but you you don't want to get too you don't want to be too influenced by your (laughs) (laughs) by your kind of uh fellow sort of bands that are around at the same time and mm. um, you try and keep honing your own doing your own thing and but since in more recent times I've returned to Elbows music and it's fantastic like yeah. um, Lippy Kids and uh, Scattered Black and White just a brilliant band yeah. um, we were obviously aware of uh, <laughs> A little bit later on, the Libertines coming through as well. That was a an exciting time for music, and uh, great to see a a band kind of building a, a hype and a fan base on their own with their little house parties and and or whatever else they were getting. Yeah, it was a a good time for music. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, you know, Star Sailor released all the plans in 2009 and all this life in 2017. But in between and since, you've been pretty prolific, really, with the, your solo stuff. What's what drove mm. you switch away then from 
you know, the band stuff to your own stuff. And, um, you know, is that something that you just think you'll always be doing, always recording and releasing stuff yourself? Yeah, I think I just needed a break, mm. not away from the band because we're, we're really good friends and we enjoy making music together. Um, but the pressure of the band and releasing Star Sailor albums, which I don't really feel when I, when I do my own stuff, it's a lot kind of smaller audience, smaller gigs and smaller listeners for the solo stuff. Um, so it's just more relaxed and more kind of, uh, I guess, more introspective as well. I, I can, yeah, a lot more recently as well. It's it's necessity where I can uh, do it pretty much all on my own at home and put stuff out. It's I, yeah. I enjoy I enjoy playing on my own as well. Not to say that I don't enjoy playing with the band, <laughs> but I like that kind of um, spontaneity. Like you can play what you like when you play on your own. You can delve into the back catalogue or um, write a song and play it. Write a song in the afternoon and play it the same night. Um, whereas if I did that with the band, they'd be like, "What? What are you doing? <laughs> we, don't, we don't know the chords to this." Um, occasionally I've like started playing Star Sailor songs during gigs and it's usually the keyboard player that kind of shoots me a, an evil look like at playing a song that's sort of unannounced it's like what I've, I've not I'm not prepared for this yeah as Pete says you've been pretty prolific with the, the, the solo stuff recently. even and it's been a busy year two albums this year as you say you've uh, had a yeah. new baby and uh, and this big tour to come so so what drove the decision to to come back for this 20th anniversary sort of release and um and tour i think we we obviously wanted to mark it in some way because it's it's such a momentous occasion it's it's almost taboo to to admit it but we need we needed the money <laughs> i think i think the lockdown especially and the difficulties that bands have had with um, streaming royalties. And it's become a lot less taboo to admit that you're not always kind of following some creative muse and everything's got some higher meaning or some kind of uh, what's holistic thing behind it. Um, We wanted to reconnect with those fans that that album means so much to um and yeah and, and get out and and earn some money to support our families <laughs> <laughs> and like like i say it's it, because people can see how hard it is to to carry on unless you're chris martin or <laughs> brandon flowers how difficult adele and ed sheeran for pretty much everyone else it's it's quite tough so no one kind of judges you for for returning to to popular albums or for doing the odd private gig or whatever you need to do to kind of put food on the table basically yeah yeah makes sense mm-hmm. brilliant stuff james cheers well um we're gonna wrap things up with the encore now james and uh first up i want to ask you about um in-store gigs because i saw on scrolling back through your instagram i saw a picture on your instagram from an in-store gig you did at hmv in oxford street 
uh, way back when for, I think, the, the launch of Science is Easy. And I'm convinced that from the perspective this picture is taken, that that is me sort of front and centre watching you. So it's the back of me. Yeah. But I'm, I'm convinced it's me. I've shown it to my wife. My brother, Shannon's Pete. Nobody thinks it's me except me, but I'm sure it is. <laughs> but, um, but I always wonder about these sorts of install gigs because, you know, uh, what is that like? You know, rocking up and playing, you know, in a, in a shop rather than you know a proper venue and and uh, people sort of you know the, these CD racks just sort of crammed together. Yeah. All these people, sound quality, and but also you know, people queuing for ages, wanting to get you at that point you know, sign CDs. Maybe maybe the odd selfie was creeping in, but uh, yeah, well, yeah, what are those experiences like for you? a bit of a highlight to be honest i think yeah. we, we'd we'd grown up with bands doing in-store gigs um there's a record shop called action records in preston that i used to go to and they do in stores in there one of the highlights was we'd always get a we'd get a little allowance or a little kind of um shopping shopping spree afterwards <laughs> so uh i think it was like 50 quid or something to just basically go and, and fill our arms with albums. So that was a great, it was considering we, we were prior to that, we weren't earning very much money and you'd kind of save up for one record to be sort of walking around going, I love that, I love that, I love that. <laughs> was the, was a, a bit of a bus. Um, yeah, lovely little perk. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, it's a, there's always quite a, quite a lot of excitement around especially the hmv the bigger kind of hmv gigs are quite exciting times and then it was nice to play some smaller record shops as well kind of further down the line in europe there's some great record shops um we got to play the um, amoeba records in hollywood which is a famous a big famous record shop over there yeah, it's good good times yeah, and sort of leads, well, sort of speaks to your previous answer as well about um, sort of the, you know the streaming and everything going on now, and uh, it's not quite the same, is it? The, the people going off to buy a CD or even going to watch yeah bands play in a record shop and try and get that CD signed. So different era, completely yeah. now. I think Banquet Records is still yeah. very much flying flying the flag for. Um, record sales and record in stores and I think they do some gigs at a nearby venue when the bands get too big for the shop so I have to give them a lot of credit for that yeah definitely um, second question in the encore James what was the best gig you've done with Star Sailor? Probably Tea in the Park oh yeah that was I remember playing Alcoholic at Tea in the Park and just the entire crowd singing along. I don't know, 30 or 40,000 people. It's a great festival. It's a real, like I love Glastonbury, but I think I prefer Glastonbury as a punter than I do as, a, as an artist because there's so many amazing bands and so much amazing music and film and theatre and anything you could care to mention at Glastonbury that it's unless you're one of the big headline bands it's it's a bit harder to get yourself noticed Mm. whereas at Tea in the Park it feels like it's a much more captive audience well it was it's sadly no no longer 
um, no longer going. But it was a, a much more music-centric crowd and a, a captive audience that everyone was there to drink and watch bands, basically. So if you got a decent slot on the on the main stage or the King Tut stage, wherever it was, you knew that there'd be a, a, a load of passionate um, Scottish people and people who travelled up who are just going to going to give you an amazing atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Scottish audiences have a good reputation for for, for being good crowds. Um, yeah, they're very, they're very loyal as well. I, I noticed that um, Ocean Colour Scene, a band who've kind of who quali- a quality band, um, but for whatever reason they've always gone in and out of fashion and. Scotland has always stayed faithful to them and always um, they've always played massive venues up there. And um, I think it's a really good trait to have to be like, no, we, we don't care who's on the front of the enemy or, well, showing my age there. Yeah, basic or who's on the Radio 1 playlist. They're just like, that this is a band that we've taken to our hearts and we're just going to stick by them through thick and thin. Yeah, brilliant. Fiercely loyal. Yeah. Um, Last up, James, I wonder if you can pick out the the song you're proudest of. Perhaps you could pick one from uh, from your solo solo efforts, but also from Star Sailor as well. There's a song called Weightless from the Small Illusions album, which is a recent solo album. Um. It's one of those songs that I was kind of proud of it when I wrote it, as I am with a lot of stuff that I write or I wouldn't put it out. (laughs) But I didn't have any inclination that it would uh, resonate so much. Um, And it's it just feels still feels really good to play. And when I say resonate, obviously, it's not become a massive hit or anything. But it feels really good to play and gets a a, a great reaction. Um, the Star Sailor song, the obvious one is "Silence Is Easy" because it's it does so much with over two chords, <laughs> which I think is a the ultimate goal really to to get a powerful message across in a simple way. If I can cheat slightly and mention another song. <laughs> Uh, Neon Sky, I think, from the fourth album, is a a real epic, um, epic song that kind of builds and builds and yeah, I think that's one of the more obscure songs that I'm really proud of and wish that more people knew. Yeah, well, go and listen to it now, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Highly recommended. Uh, James, thanks very much for coming onto the podcast. It's been great to talk about the Star Sailor story and best of luck with this uh, upcoming tour. It sounds really good. Cheers. Thanks. Great to chat to you both. <laughs>